0: Since the Oscars first aired on television in 1953, there have been nearly 70 live telecasts of the awards show.
1: My name is on 25 of them, and I've been unofficially involved with a few others.
0: <laughs> That's comedy writer Bruce Valanche. He's won two Emmys for his work on the Academy Awards.
1: The idea is to you know keep it, it's a party, and you want to, it to be as spontaneous as possible, and you want the audience to know, especially in these these times, it's live, live. And of course, the acceptance speeches is where you get so much of the show. You hope that people will say something real when they get up there.
0: To be in this category with these extraordinary women, and Glenn Close, I, you've been my idol for so long, and this is not how I, I wanted it to be, and I, I
2: think you're amazing. I love you very much.
0: Thank you. I, I will drink until next morning. Thank you. But for the rest of the Academy Awards broadcast...
1: Everything is written. And then we see, you know, we have stuff we prepared, and then we rewrite as as we go along.
0: And the Oscar for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role goes to Jack Palance, City Slippers.
1: When Jack Palance got up and did one-arm push-ups, that became a thing.
0: At the 1992 Oscars, the then 73-year-old actor Jack Palance... One for his role in City Slickers, which he starred in alongside the host that night, Billy Crystal. You
3: know, there are times when, uh, when you reach a certain age plateau where the, uh, the producers say, they talk about you and they say, well, what do you think? Can we risk it? Can we do it? Can we use him?
0: Then he walked over to the side of the podium so the audience could see him and started doing one-arm push-ups.
1: And we threw out a lot of the script and kept doing jokes about Jack Palance because he came up and the first thing he said, which nobody remembers is, Billy Crystal,
3: God, I crap bigger on him.
1: So I thought, well, he lowered the bar considerably and it was the first award of the night. So we felt, and Billy felt he could fire back, you know, so we kept firing back through the show. And that became a thing to riff off of acceptance speeches. Of course, Bob Hope and Johnny Carson did it all the time. They would come back with one line, maybe. But some of my favorite moments were off of things that were done as a result of acceptance speeches.
0: In every other episode this season, we've looked at the story of a specific person or film. But today we're going to get a little meta and talk about the formation of the awards show itself.
4: I wasn't really a sports guy as a kid, but I was into the whole competition of it all.
0: This is my fellow Turner Classic Movies host, Dave Carger.
4: I was into the idea of of that iconic moment where you see the five boxes and all the five faces, and then the winner is announced.
0: Dave has co-hosted ABC's Live from the Red Carpet, and he's been the Academy's official greeter, announcing the nominees and presenters as they arrive. And he's a longtime Oscars observer.
4: When I go back and watch moments from older ceremonies, it's very self-serious. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's meant to be this kind of prestigious moment. But I think it's been interesting to watch it over my lifetime, your lifetime, become more of an entertainment experience. You know, you think about the moment with the streaker, with David Niven.
0: At the 1974 Oscars, a streaker interrupted British actor David Niven, who was co-hosting that night.
3: Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's... um That was almost bound to happen (laughs) but isn't it fascinating that (laughs) fascinating to think that, that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings
4: you know all of the interesting dance numbers that have now sprung out of the oscars and having There's always been comedians hosting, but now they're with people like Jimmy Kimmel or Ellen DeGeneres. I think it's gone a little bit sillier, which I think is good.
0: It's a delicate balance celebrating the art of filmmaking, the artists in front of and behind the camera, keeping the in-house audience and viewers at home entertained all on live television where things can and sometimes do go wrong.
1: And if you're, if you write this kind of stuff for a living, it's It's like being a football player and going to the Super Bowl. This is the game that everybody will see.
0: I'm Jacqueline Stewart. Welcome to the Academy Museum podcast. In this episode, we are revisiting the 1953 Academy Awards, the year of the first Oscars telecast, how making The Biggest Night in Movies a television event changed the meaning of the awards. And with the ceremony approaching its 100-year anniversary, how might it have to change to keep the world's attention? When you look at the way that people think about the Academy Awards today, how does that compare in your mind to what they were initially set up to do when it was a much more kind of intimate gathering?
4: It's so funny to think back to the first Oscars in the late 1920s when they were this 15-minute long ceremony as part of a dinner. The winners had been announced three months earlier, so everyone knew they had won. The handing out of the awards took 15 minutes, and it was just kind of, here you go. And it was just, just this new idea to give awards of merit, as they were called, that this newly formed Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences came up with this idea of of, you know, maybe as a PR uh, move. I think that was a lot of the impetus for it. I think 1920s, there were some negative stories going around about the movie industry and movie stars. There were some scandals.
0: Those scandals included highly publicized rape and murder cases involving actors and directors in the 1920s. And before the Motion Picture Production Code went into effect in 1934 and censorship took hold, The film industry was being heavily criticized for the negative social impact of violence and salacious content in movies.
4: And I think that that this was one way to kind of combat that and for Hollywood to say to the world, there's quality product coming out of what we're doing.
0: The first time the Oscars were broadcast to an outside audience was not on television, but live on local L.A. radio in 1930 for the Academy Awards' second year. In 1945, the ceremony was broadcast on national radio for the first time, and Bob Hope was the host.
3: This is quite an occasion. I don't know if everybody's nervous or not, but there'll be a short intermission while the ushers sweep the fingernails out of the aisle.
0: It was also the first year that included clips from the nominated films. A commentator described the scenes for the radio audience like a baseball announcer or like video description for people who are blind or visually impaired.
3: Here is an intensely dramatic scene from the equally intense picture lifeboat. It was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. You can hear, I'm sure the
4: soundtrack in the background, although there is no dialogue in this particular scene. And at that time, the ceremony was partially funded by the movie studios and that helped pay for it. But when some of the studios were pulling their funding, that's when the Academy realized they need other, revenue streams.
0: One reason movie studios started tightening their purse strings was because of a 1948 Supreme Court ruling. In the landmark Paramount decision, the court found the studios guilty of violating antitrust laws. As a result, most of them had to divest of their theater chains, and their profits were down.
4: So that's really the main reason why the Oscars began to be televised the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences 25th Annual Academy Awards.
0: Maybe not surprisingly, because he's headed up the most Oscar ceremonies, the host for that first TV broadcast on NBC was again Bob Hope. This is indeed a wedding of two
3: great entertainment mediums
4: with motion pictures and television. And you have the jokes that Bob hope is making you know calling television a child bride on this tv telecast honoring film
3: with oscar 25 years old it's high time he got married (laughs) while it's true that he has a child bride it's a comfort to note that the kid is loaded (laughs) in fact the bride's father is picking up the tab for this wedding reception
4: (laughs) i think that was the elephant in the room there was this tension between film and tv and what's interesting is that This Oscar ceremony likely marked the first television appearance for a lot of these big movie stars, for sure.
0: Isn't it
3: exciting to know that a lot of these glamorous stars are gonna be in your homes tonight? All over America, housewives are turning to their husbands and saying, put on your shirt, Joan Crawford is coming.
4: Look at the people who were even nominated in the acting categories, Gary Cooper, Marlon Brando, Alec Guinness, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Gloria Graham, Richard Burton, Anthony Quinn, these were not people who were accessible celebrities, right? These were people who the audience saw on the silver screen or maybe in a photo play, you know, or celebrity magazine in a still photo. So this was a very rare moment where these huge movie stars who were only ever seen in character or in a very orchestrated PR moment that's captured on still photography, being themselves.
0: This is a really interesting period for both media, right? Like the film industry is competing with television and in many ways kind of, you know, losing and trying to figure out these strategies for making going to the movies very different from watching TV. This is where color becomes so important, Technicolor and Cinemascope. (laughs) giving away dishes, like whatever theater owners could do to get people into the theaters. So it was a really interesting dynamic to have this celebration of the movies on television. But some movie companies are
3: still stubborn about recognizing television. Jack Warner still refers to TV as that furniture that stares back. (laughs) But movies are still your best
0: entertainment. It's all movies. Could you just talk about like some of the tensions between movies and TV? Because there was a real hierarchy culturally, artistically, at the same time that there was also a difference, a huge difference in terms of of numbers, right? Of, Of profit.
4: I mean, TV was really where it was at. At this point, everybody, everybody was now getting one. Um, it's kind of like how you know cable then overtook broadcasts and then streaming has now overtaken cable. This was TV overtaking movies to, a, to a, some extent at the time. And you know, all the things you mentioned that the movie industry then tried to do to combat this and get people out of their homes, Cinemascope, Technicolor, 3D.
3: Don't get me wrong, television is wonderful. Today you can sit home and uh, see Broadway shows, go to church in your own living room. You don't have to go outside for anything.
4: I was born on a farm where you had to go outside for everything. And then just in general, these kind of larger spectacle type films, you know, so the 50s was the decade of Ben-Hur or the 50s was the decade of Tellingly, the movie that won the best picture for the year that we're talking about, which was the greatest show on earth. Um, And that was, you know, the big Cecil B. DeMille extravaganza with every star known to
0: man. Set against the backdrop of the Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus, The Greatest Show on Earth starred Charlton Heston, Jimmy Stewart, Dorothy L'Amour, and Gloria Graham.
4: So I think they were pulling out all the stops at that point. And and I I think it's telling that The Greatest Show on Earth won Best Picture that year because it's widely considered one of the least deserving um, Best Picture winners of all time. It beat High Noon, which, of course, stands the test of time a little bit more, I would argue, and a lot of people would, than The Greatest Show on Earth.
1: I dimly remember watching the first one because the first movie I ever saw was the greatest show on earth.
0: Again, that's comedy writer Bruce Valanche. In the years following that first broadcast, there were some network changes from NBC to ABC, back to NBC, and then back to ABC again. The format we know today began to take shape, with elaborate musical and dance performances, traditions like the In Memoriam montage... The Red Carpet becoming a show unto itself, and watch parties happening across the country, including at Bruce Valanche's house.
1: I was in Patterson, New Jersey, and it went on at 10 o'clock at night in New York. And at the time, as they had the, a New York uh, audience and an LA audience, and they would go back and forth. The winner in New York is. Uh, so, uh, and I. Dimly remember watching it but but I watched it every year from from then on. It was a ritual in our house my, when I was a kid, my mother would have me take a disco nap and then she'd wake me up for it. And we'd sit there with party hats and you know and and the Canada dry posing a champagne so it was she loved it I mean it was also it was it was you know she was an Oscar junkie she loved it. so it was a uh, it was I always thought I'd somehow be involved in it. And there, and that was.
0: Bruce's first writing credit for the awards was in 1989. And over the next decade, the Academy Awards would see some of its highest ratings, peaking in 1998, the year that Titanic won Best Picture. After being involved in more than 25 Oscars broadcasts, Bruce has some stories and thoughts about what makes a successful show.
1: I've said to every host, I said, the thing to remember is that one person wins in each category. And as, so as the evening wears on, the audience is filled up with losers if they've stayed after they've lost. And so the energy, they're not really paying attention to you. They're At this point, they're texting, firing people because they didn't win. So you, you run the risk of having a room largely populated by seat fillers, because people have left or by people who are terminally bitter and they don't make for the best audiences as the, as the show goes on so that's why uh the hosts we frequently would front load the show with the good stuff because at, nobody was paying attention as as the, as it wore on
0: and then there are the acceptance speeches we highlight some of the most memorable ones in the Academy Museum's Academy Awards History Gallery.
1: You always want somebody to to do something theatrical or meaningful or whatever when they when they win. And sometimes they're just overwhelmed and they just say thank you and disappear. And of course, that does save you time, uh, so you can't really hate them. But uh, you know, you you want them to to do something that really uh, uh, that really is moving. I mean, because. When it's real, when it's sincere, it's a great moment. It's a great cultural touchstone. I think my favorite acceptance piece is Springsteen.
5: See, this is the first song I ever wrote for a motion picture, so I guess it's all downhill from here. <laughs> but uh,
1: When he won for the, the song from Philadelphia and talked about what popular art is supposed to be.
0: Philadelphia is the 1993 film starring Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington about a lawyer with HIV who was fired from his firm and sues for discrimination. Yeah, you, uh, you do your best work and you hope that it pulls out the best in your audience, that some piece of it spills over into the real
5: world and into people's everyday lives. And it takes the edge off the fear and allows us to recognize each other through our veil of differences.
1: Absolutely. What a profound thing, you know, for this, for, the, for, for this rock and roll guy to say, I mean, he's the boss. That's why he's the boss. But it was, and that's you want wonderful moments like that.
0: And then in terms of the audience, because it seems like getting that tone right is the really, you know, that's the secret sauce of it. Like, who are you speaking to? How much do you revere the awards versus try to do something that's more lighthearted? It's a
1: combination depending on who you've got uh, in charge, but it, there's always a balance. You don't want to be too lighthearted. I mean, if, Letterman's problem was that that, uh, that he brought too much of his own show to to the Oscars, and they weren't there for that, you know. And, and you can't and you can't do the kind of stuff that he did, which I love, which is kind of juvenile.
5: I've been dying to do something all day, and I think maybe. We can take care of this...
1: You know, Uma, Oprah.
5: Oprah?
4: Uma? Uma? Oprah?
1: I feel much better. He kept riffing on their names. And, you know, they're not at the Oscars to have TV boy make fun of their names.
0: Have you kids met Keanu? <laughs> Has there ever been a, a year when you could see that you needed to change direction, that there were some things that you needed to do, you and the writing team, to oh, kind yeah. of like uh,
1: turn it around. Gil Cates loved themes, and I don't even know if people realized that the show had a theme every time he was producing it. But one year, the, the theme was women, women in film, and Chuck Workman put together this incredible clip package. The audience was in tears. It was every famous scene that a woman had ever done. Uh, and a lot of them were very moving. And Billy had to follow that. And uh, we didn't know what the clip was going to be until the last minute. And uh, it was also the year of basic instinct. And so Billy said, wonderful, we're celebrating all these parts in movies, because we know the biggest part this year was Sharon Stone's. Which, which now, of course, is a joke that would immediately get you sent to, to Cancelville. But then was, you know, it was a groaner. But I mean, it was the audience was actually actively angry that you would follow this thing. And it was, it was a rare misstep. But he was aware of it. And so we took, we went through the everything else that we had prepared to, to just make sure that, that there was nothing that was anything that was like that. Because clearly they had really been moved by this this piece. And uh, it was just the wrong, it was the wrong note.
0: Is there a certain joke or bit, song that you got onto a broadcast that you feel especially proud of?
1: Um, Well, I do know. Uh, I, I, I joke that proud we got a fart joke in. Uh, a, a movie was hosting, of course, <laughs> and it, uh, it followed the number from Pocahontas called "The Colors of My The, the Color of My Wind," "The Colors of My Wind," "The Colors of the Wind." Uh, performed from Pocahontas, performed by Vanessa Williams, and it was a, a weird conceptual number. And afterwards, Whoopi came in and says, "Something I've always wondered: What color is my wind?" It's got a huge laugh. And and the network censor kind of looked at me and went. (laughs) (laughs) I I laughed. Mrs. Futterman. Susan Futterman was the network censor for all of those things. And she's retired, but she really was hysterical because she was always on the writer's side.
0: Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Wow. Wow. You have to tell us more about Mrs. Futterman.
1: It was, it was, you know, sometimes you get these standards of practice people and they're very, they're very Priscilla good body and they're, you know, they're, they're stuck up and they're, and you feel they have no life experience and this is why they're in that job. But she was not like that. We had a, a joke one year. It was the year that Hugh Grant was a, a busted with a hooker whose name was Divine Brown. And Whoopi's joke was, uh, what a year it's been. Of course, the biggest release was Hugh Grant's. And that got a laugh. And then she said, if that's a real fellatio, Alger story. And, 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 but Mrs. Futterman came over and said, you can't say fellatio. It's on the list of words that you cannot say. Fallatio is not. So we had to cut that part of the joke. (laughs) She let us do the early part, but we couldn't, we had to cut the second part. You know, and I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to do double entendre on, on a big show like that because, you know, as, as you know, with all double entendre, People who get it laugh and people who don't get it, you know, <laughs> they just think, what was that? And, they, and you, they move right along.
0: Wow. Wow. How much did your, you know, job kind of depend on ratings? Like, did you have a, a sense of feeling some pressure about what the ratings would be as a writer for the show?
1: Yeah, but, uh, the ratings really had more to do with the movies of the year than anything else. I mean, you might get an artificial bump with a host because there was a curiosity factor. But basically you've had, a, if it's been a big year at the movies, people are interested in, in, in what the show is. They, they have, they're more in touch. If you say, oh, it's the Oscars are on and people say, but I haven't seen any of these movies. You know, then you know it's going to be a depressed uh, rating thing. But I think when you look over the chart, you have to realize that that there's been a precipitous drop. But you know, there's been a precipitous drop in everything. I mean, it's a five hundred word channel universe to begin with. Now, plus people have so many other things to do on their phones, and you know, it's the uh, there's no more broadcasting. There's narrowcasting. You know, when I started writing the show, it was still a three-network town. I mean, it may have been a four-network town by then. Uh, And, um, you know, you had – if you didn't get at least a third of the audience, you were off the air as a regular show, you know. I mean, you had to get at least 17 million people watching you or 30, you know, in order to to stay on the air. And now, you know, I mean, uh, the other night CBS won the night with three and a half million people watching. So – it's a different, it's a new world, Goldie.
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, do you feel that as a result of this, you know, proliferation of options that people have and television changing so much that the Academy Awards can have the same kind of cultural place that it had when you were writing for it, when you started watching it as a as a kid?
1: Probably not. And I, I hate to say that because, you know, it really is. I love the ritual. I think that also the... uh the proliferation of award shows, many of which I've written, and the, the run-up to the Oscars, which is interesting uh, in our bubble, but n- probably not that interesting to people in Dubuque, Iowa, it has has decimated the uh, the, the population that, that's going to watch it. I think that uh, I feel bad about that. I don't know that somebody in their 20s gives a rat's ass about about the Oscars, A, or whether what's going to happen to them or anything like that. I mean, at this point, it's much more about uh, a corporate struggle between people who, ma- who make money off the Academy Awards. Number one, the Academy. Number two, the Network. And then number three is the studios who use the Oscar as a, a, what it always was intended to be used for, a, a publicity tool, a way to get people asses into seats, so uh, there's a lot of money at stake. But it's but there always was, but there still is a lot of money at stake. But it's it's like polar bears uh, arguing, you know, having a turf war over melting ice.
0: Similar to 1953, when television's popularity was rising, viewing habits have been changing dramatically in recent years. Ratings for award shows are down. So how does the Oscars broadcast stay relevant now and into the future? After the break, we'll hear from David Rubin, outgoing president of the Academy, and ABC executive Rob Mills about how they imagine the future of the Academy Awards broadcast.
5: It was fascinating to watch the transition from a radio broadcast of the Oscars to a television broadcast of the Oscars because that was a transitional moment similar to what we are experiencing now.
0: That's outgoing Academy president David Rubin.
5: The way people are receiving their entertainment, particularly younger audiences, is markedly different from just a a decade ago. It's something that the Academy has had to contend with along with our broadcast partners at ABC. And it's it's not reconciled yet. I think it's on an annual basis. Experiments are, are being tried to see how you can engage the people that are less connected to a three hour broadcast about the movies.
0: So far this episode, we've talked about how the Academy Awards broadcast is more than just one thing. It's a celebration of excellence in filmmaking and it's a massive live entertainment event. It's also a partnership, a long-running and important one, between the Academy and ABC.
5: Both entities have such a tremendous stake in the outcome. ABC through through their advertising income and the Academy through a contract with the network that subsidizes all the great work that the Academy does throughout the year. The partnership with ABC to produce a world-class night of television celebrating movies is, is essential to the existence of the Academy.
2: And so we work together, sort of figuring out, putting together the show all the way through Oscar night. But it really is, it's a year-round process. Rob
0: Mills is Executive Vice President of Unscripted and Alternative Entertainment for Walt Disney Television. That includes special events on ABC, like the Oscars.
2: I think that when you have something that's 95 years old, it can't live in a vacuum. It's got to change. It's got to evolve. It still has to hold true to the core principles and everything that that the show is supposed to be about. But, you know, you never—I'm never against trying anything. And I have to say, one of the things that we actually did try and didn't work was the year Steven Soderbergh produced it, and we put Best Actor last— gambling that, you know, it was going to be Chadwick Boseman and that was going to be the biggest, most emotional moment of the, the the whole telecast. And, of course, that ended up being somebody who wasn't even there. And
1: the Academy Award for Actor goes to Anthony Hopkins,
2: the father. <clears throat> the Academy congratulates Anthony Hopkins and accepts the Oscar on his behalf. Thank you. So, you know... That didn't work, but at least, you know, you can never fault anyone for trying something. And um, I also, I remember, I think it maybe the ninth Oscars or something. So you're 89 years in and they brought in David Hill from who had done the NFL for Fox and Reggie Hudlin to produce it. And David said, you know, I want to do something that people, you know, the problem with Oscar speeches, you don't get to the emotion fast enough because they want to thank, their agent or their, you know, the people who are important to them, but it's really a laundry list of names. So I want to do, when they're walking to the stage, they have the option of doing a lower third crawl. So it would say such and such, you know, Sylvester Stallone wants to thank his brother Frank and his, his mom. And And it was one of those things that it didn't really work, but it was great to, to try it and, and see if it could work.
0: As the network executive who oversees big event specials for Walt Disney Television... Rob is there in person for the Oscars. So, you have been in the control room for some really surprising moments at Oscars ceremonies. <laughs> the best picture. Which moments mix-up. are you talking about? Well, I'm thinking about, you know, some envelope issues in 2017. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm thinking about <laughs> what happened just a few months ago uh, when Will Smith slept, Chris Rock on stage. Obviously, two very different examples of things not going as expected. And I just would love to hear your experience of kind of you know when there's a moment like that in this massive kind of show what what how do you deal in the moment with situations like that you and the team of folks involved in the broadcast
2: well in the moment you know it's really because it is live it's really you know you' you're sort of on a bus without brakes it's just got it's just gonna keep going so you've got to keep it going and that's really what it's about sometimes I mean I remember with the envelope thing.
0: At the twenty seventeen Oscars, before Best Picture was announced, presenters Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were given the wrong envelope by the representative from Price Waterhouse Coopers. And they mistakenly announced that the winner was La La Land. After the film's producers began their speeches, it became clear that something had gone wrong.
4: There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
3: This is not a joke. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a
2: joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. (laughs) Moonlight. Best Picture. Hearing that over the mic, and I thought, because we had all been, we were packing our stuff up and we were getting ready to go to the governor's ball. And I thought it was, because it was our stage manager who I know well, and he's actually a really, he's a funny guy. I thought he was kidding. Because I thought, oh, that's really funny that it would be the the wrong envelope, little you know, and then we find out ten seconds later, oh my God, he's not kidding. They actually gave out the wrong, and en- or she read the wrong thing, and um, you know, you just you try and take. I mean, this is the Oscars, so it is the world's best, you know. You've got best in class and everything and that includes. At that point, it was the stage manager Gary Natoli who really wrangled everyone got everyone together, and our director, Glenn Weiss, who just kept the show going and making sure that, you know, the producers of Moonlight did get to give their speech. And we were fortunate, too. We had a host in Jimmy Kimmel who could really sort of put everything together, put a bow on it. We were very fortunate that that was one of the years we had a host. Um, But you just sort of, you know, you, you, you keep going. You get the show wrapped up. It's live. And you press on and then after that you do a postmortem which the academy certainly did with price waterhouse coopers and 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 that's that's really all you can do is afterwards is when you can look at everything and you know what what was this how did this work you know, and how do we avoid if it's something that is a moment you don't really want how do we avoid it in the future mm-hmm. and it really was the same thing this past year which was it was again it was a live show so you know, we pressed on in the moment obviously we we kept the show going and then afterwards there's still discourse about it obviously so so i think afterwards is really when you you look at everything but in the moment you've just got to keep the show going
0: does the ratings question keep you up at night david i'm wondering just how Consistently, this is the issue that comes up for you.
5: One thing that needs to be reconciled in some way is that the the films themselves that the Academy members are recognizing uh, are often films that haven't been seen by a huge global audience, or certainly not yet. And those films are 100% worthy of recognition and praise and awards. But it's been many years, probably since Titanic swept the Oscars, that audiences around the world have had a real stake in rooting for a favorite film that they've all seen and loved. And mostly they're being introduced to interesting work being done on films that haven't yet come within 100 miles of their hometown. And that's a challenge in creating a broadcast that goes out globally.
0: Yes, yes. And what you said about efforts to experiment, to try different strategies, to bridge the gap that you're talking about. This is something that clearly has been happening over recent years. And I wonder if there are any of these um, you know, efforts that you felt were really, you know, are worth exploring more. Thinking about the popular film category, for example, or, you know, other ways of bridging that disconnect that you were just talking about. I think a lot of
5: it can be most effective in gearing up toward the Oscars. And I'm hoping that going forward, there is programming either on the ABC television network or on the streaming affiliates that all fall under the Disney banner, which are Hulu and Disney Plus and lots of possibilities to, to talk about the movies that people will be rewarding uh, on the Oscars well in advance so that they have a sense, just as they do in, in, uh, in leading up to the Olympics every four years. There are, you know, there, are int- there are compelling human interest stories told about all of those athletes about whom we know nothing prior to the Olympic year, and I think there's a, there's a way of hooking audiences into the, to the people involved, the crafts involved in making films that might enable them to feel as though they have an emotional stake, uh, a horse in the race, even though the, the film itself might not have even reached their hometown.
0: Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting.
5: It doesn't feel right to suggest that Academy voters should not pay attention to the quality no matter where they find it. So I, I feel as though if if there's there's a quality film out there that hasn't been seen by the masses, it's it's still worth celebrating and touting. And and maybe we should just work harder to let everybody in on the secret of the brilliance of those films. And and also I think it's likewise important for Academy voters Not to be snobbish about the artistry, craftsmanship, and storytelling that is happening uh, in major motion pictures, on blockbuster motion pictures, because the work that's happening on on those films is just as worthy of recognition and mustn't be overlooked in favor of any other film.
0: One of the most controversial issues surrounding the Oscars has been this question of whether and how the Academy should recognize more, quote-unquote, popular films and the decision to pre-tape some of the awards and present an edited version of the speeches during the 2022 telecast sparked a lot of criticism in the lead up to the awards one of the things that i've heard people of color in the industry say especially as as the conversations were happening about how to handle pre-taping some of the award presentations this year is how important it is for people who are from Marginalized groups to see someone like them go up there and win an award, no matter what the category is. And I would love to just hear you talk about how that aspect of the broadcast, about that kind of um, of mirroring that can happen, how that's a dimension of it too. That's so important in the way that it speaks beyond people who are in the industry itself.
5: The Academy has worked very hard to expand its membership to increase the number of people of color, the number of women, and the number of international filmmakers. And that has, that has in, in many ways, shown a change in, in the kinds of films that are being recognized, the kinds of films that are winning these awards. And as a result, the people that are bounding up onto that stage to accept them are now more and more, and we're, this is really... Just a step in the right direction, more and more looking like the people in our audience and and connecting with young people people around the world who, who are realizing that if they have a dream to tell stories on the big screen, it can happen. It can not only happen but they can excel at it and they can be recognized for it so the aspirational aspects of this of this broadcast are tremendous. And they have to be underscored and magnified, you know, going forward. Uh, it's, it's a tremendous influence on people's lives. Understanding that there are possibilities for them to have a career in motion pictures, to know a bit more about the crafts that are represented on the Oscars, opens up possibilities. And it's, it's really a huge part of the Academy's mission to enhance that element of the Oscars broadcast.
0: The Academy Museum podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. This episode was produced by Monica Bushman. The Academy Museum podcast team includes Antonia Sarajito, Victoria Alejandro, Kimberly Stevens, and Monica Bushman. The show is a production of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in collaboration with Elias Studios. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Antonia Sarajito and Leo G are the executive producers for Elias Studios. Our Academy Museum website, academymuseum.org is designed by Fantasy and developed by Impossible Bureau. Our Elias website, Elias.com slash podcast is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The Academy Museum marketing team created our branding. Thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Sean Anderson, Peter Castro, Stephanie Sykes, and Matt Youngner. And to our Academy colleagues, Randy Haberkamp and Claire Lockhart. Thanks also to the team at Elias Studios, including Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.